0: Hi, Merlin. Hey, how's it going, Max? Good. No, Alex this week. I can't believe she's missing the uh, bread challenge. This is really her uh, her area of expertise. Oh, it's, it's bitter. This is like a like a
1: saw episode.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. It's her uh, her cruel undoing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she's got a. She's got a. I mean, I don't know if we can say she's got a double sinus infection.
0: It's uh, that's brutal. I usually i, I get uh, i get a single sinus infection almost every time I get sick. I just get a follow up. I get I I get sick. I get better, and then I get sick again. And it's always a sinus infection. I I often have to take antibiotics to uh, get rid of it. It is. It's extremely unpleasant. It's one of the worst, just general sicknesses to have is a sinus infection. It sucks.
1: And It's really overwhelming. It's like you ever had bronchitis? No, I don't think I have. That's that's like a a cough. Yeah, that's like sinuses for your lungs. It's no good. You don't want that. I feel bad for her and She's got the. She's probably at home with the cats. You know? Can you imagine? Yeah, that's a. That's
0: tough. I hope. Uh, I hope. Uh, I hope Alex is better next week. I also just. Want, I miss her. Uh, her input. There's so many things in this episode. I was like, I can't wait to see what Alex thinks about this.
1: I know, and she knows how to make a podcast, so we're a little bit fucked. <coughs> yeah.
0: Well, well, you know, we'll we'll power through. And, you I'm, know what? In uh, I'm memoriam. editing. I'm editing this week, which probably means there's no editing. So this is really going to be. <laughs> this is really going to be an experience for our listeners. That's
1: my kind of episode. Yeah. Diggit, 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 diggit. Two chefs remain.
0: This, uh, so I, I realized as they were doing the, like, uh, all the chefs were hanging out in San Francisco talking about last week's episode. Um, maybe it's just because it's like almost all I'm thinking about in my life right now, but it's starting to remind me a lot of the Republican presidential primary.
1: Oh.
0: Where basically. Um, you know, especially when it got down, you had this this big field and you had the people who are sort of conventionally good. Those would be the establishment candidates like, you know, Kwame and Marjorie, the people who have won a lot of challenges. Right. And then you have the weird the, the sort of I don't want to I hesitate to call them dinglings, but they're more of the like long shot outsider candidates. So this is, you know, Amar and Jeremy who's a little bit of a goofball. Certainly Isaac. Right. Like I, Isaac, I'd say
1: Isaac is the he is the what the Kasich of this. No, he's the Rubio. Oh, is the establishment
0: the character, right? It's Rubio and Trump are the are the insurgent outsider candidates who are are not part of the Republican establishment. So who's the, I, one,
1: who's the one that stopped the government? Was that Rubio?
0: He was. He's one of those. He's much more of the uh, in line with the sort of like Tea Party outsider. Oh. I'm not part of Washington. You know mentality. He's an, he's a, of course like he's conventional as compared to Donald Trump, but he's it. It would be like like Kasich and and um, Ted Cruz are the more establishment candidates that are left in the race. Anyway, so yeah. it, it's just weird. And then I feel I'm increasingly feeling like Jeremy is Donald Trump in that I don't really like his temperament. And I sort of wrote him off like, you know, early in the middle of the season, once they sort of established his bro like character, I was like, this guy, this is a non-starter, right? Like it's just a matter of time before this goofball is out. And now not only is Jeremy the dominant force, like the runaway winner of like everything in this episode, but he's sort of like guiding the whole group, right? Everyone is doing his like chest bumps and chants and bro. And and
1: he has that feeling of inevitability right yeah isn't yeah. it weird of like I, I i
0: couldn't get it out of my head I, I was like it's like this maps onto the republican primary so neatly that's a terrible thought do you do you get that um um i don't know how how closely uh uh you you follow any of the the s- sort of s- sports like aspects of the uh of the um you know primary politics but do you get a, a feeling i know like a, a number of our friends on um Twitter over the last few weeks have sort of expressed a feeling of, uh, like, apocalyptic dread, thinking yeah. about the the Trump, you know, candidacy or, or presidency. Do you get that at all?
1: Mm. Are you, are you leaving this in? Oh, yeah, this is in. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. I got a lot of feelings about it. Um, I, I don't follow it very well, but I like that uh, five thirty eight site, and I like uh, Nate Silver and his group and i don't know i so i have i'm you know you have to tell me what you think also so you can get in trouble too <laughs> okay, okay. no w- what i think is that the the fact that there are people who want donald trump to do anything uh publicly that always seems weird to me but it's not totally shocking but it's weird that it went this far until you just start actually reading about what people actually think and then it's not surprising at all it's you know on, on the one hand there are The problem is that we always view this through the lens of two parties who are trying to nominate somebody and then send them to the election, which is not – that has been a convenient lens, but it's not an accurate lens. I mean, something we've, we've all known for a while, for a few years, is there's not that many people that hew to the party line for reasons. That just go, whatever the party says, I believe. I'm a Republican because I believe in Republican Party values. I think more likely they like the Republican Party because they want to win, and they can mostly get behind the person. So I guess what people underestimate this time around is how utterly disenfranchised a lot of people feel, and not the people you and I think of as feeling disenfranchised. So in that way, it's not that surprising that you know, somebody who says the truth that nobody else wants to say and you know, uh, you know, isn't a quote-unquote outsider... That's not that surprising. And then I don't know if you saw that thing in was it the Guardian? Did you see the anonymous letters? From, oh, of the people who support yeah. Trump? Yeah, what'd you think of that? Um Doesn't well, that doesn't that give you a slightly different point of view? It does. I've I've
0: sort of always um so I so you know, I uh I have I I always think of politics in terms of what's What's really being said, like what's not being said and what's really being said and, and what, what – there's always a layer of performance on top of, of American politics, especially as it pertains to like really delicate stuff like like party affiliation and racial politics and things like that. So I'm always looking at like what's the coded message? What's the hidden message? So an example would be this whole – the whole thing that for eight years – I mean we dealt with this on the, on the 2008 campaign. It was a, a weird issue of like is Obama really a Christian – is he a secret Muslim? And then is he a citizen? And I've always understood that. I mean, I know, you know, roughly 40 to 50% of the Republican Party in polls says they don't know if Barack Obama is a Christian or not, which is, at this point, I think it's fair to say that is a conspiracy theory. I mean, that is a conspiracy th- theory to me on the same level as the the people who think like the Sandy Hook shootings were faked because it was like a ploy, it was like a false flag operation. Do you
1: really feel for, like it's that bad? I mean in a
0: room I've been in the room with the man where he was with you know, Christian leaders and 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 very earnestly talked about his values and it matched it mapped perfectly onto what he says publicly. I mean it's like I, I just don't – I just it, – it's a crazy conspiracy theory to say I can't believe he in his heart he's a Christian. But, regard, but my, my, regardless, my broader point is I've, I've never felt like people really necessarily – that's really what they're saying or they really believe that. I think what they're really saying is I don't like – I'm uncomfortable with the fact that he's black. I don't like that he's black, and I don't have a way to say that. So what I'm going to say in a sort of dog – the dog whistle thing I'm going to say is, well, he's not a Christian. He's not really like me. Right, it's that he's he's an other.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's I think that's almost definitely true. I I, I guess in just back to your point though about what, but how much is a performance? I think maybe what's I, I would guess what some people mean is whatever he decides to call himself or say or where he sits on a Sunday morning, he's not governing in a way that aligns with my idea of what Christianity is. Well, which is its own <sighs> dog whistle about an entire set of values. Um, I about think how the world should work.
0: I think you're, I think it's almost, I think that read of it, I mean, certainly some people do feel like that, right? Some people on the right are like really thoughtful and they're like, I've really thought about how my faith um, informs my political beliefs and I don't feel like that, that if Barack Obama had the same faith as me, he could support the same political opinions. But I don't think people are doing – I think you're, 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 um, you're assuming almost too much of a logical process on, on top of what they're saying. What they're really mm-hmm. saying is I don't like the guy and he's not like me. And I feel like much in the same way, what people are responding to when they support Donald Trump is not that I think this guy would be a good world leader, that he would make good foreign policy decisions, or this or that, or that they like anything that he has to say in particular. It's just that voting for Trump is registering your broad dissatisfaction with the American political system, which is extremely unpopular. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's sort of interesting... Well,
1: and, and you know, to take it further, uh, to so you don't like the political process... But, you know, the the thing that seems to be hanging in the air everywhere amongst these folks is that I also am very threatened by the cultural um, and sociological and ethnographic changes of the last right. few years. Like, you know, it's it's just white privilege run amok because it's basically a lot of people saying, hey, what happened to my free lead, uh, my free— uh, you know, I get, I usually, usually get a head start on every sprint. Like, what happened to that? No, that's not entirely fair. But there are, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of forces from the last 40 years that are kind of, you well, know, someone, banging up against each other. Someone, it may have been a 538 thing, but
0: someone mapped um, counties with the highest increase of white mortality with Trump voters, with where Trump is winning. And it was like a one-to-one match. It was a really scary correlation of like, this This fits perfectly. But uh, I think another i mean I think um, I think something you talk about a lot that i really that I really like and I really strongly agree with is people rarely believe things because they think that they're they're dumb or they're misinformed. Um, people usually think that they, they feel that they have good reasons for believing the things they do right and uh, I think some of the things that that I found really helpful in terms of like getting inside the mind of people who are like unironically really enthusiastic about Donald Trump. Um, There's – for one, there's this piece on Vox called The Rise of American Authoritarianism that uh, our friend uh, uh, Adam uh, linked to on Twitter that I thought was a a really, really good write-up. It's a good
1: read. It's a good read.
0: Very, very good. And that also – I mean another book I think I've I've heard you talk about is uh, George Lakoff, Don't Think of an Elephant. Yeah, um, and uh, this this sort of rise of authoritarianism um, that fits really nicely in, in with the parts that I, I really like about "Don't Think of an Elephant." Um, and the whole the whole idea there is people's political divides are often not due to like having different sets of the facts, or you know they disagree on principles. It's more of like everybody has these moral filters uh, that they look at the world through that color how you see all of the things that happen in the world around you. And there's sort of two very fundamentally different stories of like what's happening in America, and it's very hard if you have the the blue team uh, filter over your eyes, it's very hard to emotionally respond to the things that the that the red team responds to, and vice versa. And I think that this whole this whole um, um, sort of axis of like authoritarian politics making a, a, a comeback in the Republican Party is really particularly difficult for people on the blue team with with the blue filter to look at and make heads or tails of.
1: Well, yeah, and to, to evoke the phrase Lakoff uses a lot, you have a certain frame that you may or may not, you probably aren't really aware of, or as he puts it, the, you know, as he says, the metaphors we live by, which is the idea that there are these things that we might think of as metaphors that are actually extremely real to us about, you know, like you've got the strong father thing he talks about in his book. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's there's it's never been... It seems like every 2 to 4 2 and 4 years you hear about wanting to like throw out throw the bums out bring in some fresh blood bring in some outsiders that part's not new the part that feels new to me is that the the fairly easy to draw differences between this is what we call republican this is what that's becoming um much less useful as a distinction because now you've got people where, you know, look at, look at the things you've read about how much <laughs> Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have in common in certain ways. Like there are these certain unexpected areas of overlap that they have in basically saying, hey, you know, this big government has gone too far in these certain ways. Um,
0: well, and, 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 even, and even the, the big one, from, the big overlap for me is a mistrust in the institution that, that, that corruption is at the heart of the problems that
1: we see, because they both talk about that a lot. Well, that it, and that it's, I mean, I think there's a feeling that almost everybody has. I mean, anybody who's a grown up understands that there's a bunch of stuff you got to do just because that's the way it works. But I think the feeling that more and more people have is that it's not only a system that maybe had good intentions and is screwed up, but it's a system that has become corrupted by design. And whether you look at that from the side of, you know, the PACs and super PACs that you can have or, you know, just all the or the fact that for the Congress could just say, hey, look, we're just going to defy the Constitution and not even meet. With a Supreme Court candidate, there's just this whole idea of like what you know what rules is anybody even playing by?
0: Well, or, or or Donald Trump has openly advocated violating the terms of the Geneva Convention to commit human rights abuses against you know enemy combatants. And then there's and he just gets a
1: constant to... grace note of like, oh, they'll do it, or they're going to find out. Like he he's just he's such a bully about like oh, you don't want to mess with me because you'll find out what happens. But people cheer about that.
0: I mean, what are you supposed to? What someone like like you or I, who I would say we're we're probably, I mean, I feel like I'm probably more of a moderate on on many issues than like the people in my in my social circles right like I I think a lot about statesmanship and civics and compromise and and those kind of things like Where's the line? Like if you – if let's say Donald Trump is elected president and he pursues a policy of committing human rights abuses and violating the Geneva Convention, what do you do as a citizen of the country? Like where's yeah, the –
1: Yeah, but I think a lot of people feel – and I think we've all, we have all feel this in some way about some things is that all of that civility is not being used to do good things for us. It's, it's, it's all that civility is being used to cover up. The rotten way the government runs, and so it's time for somebody to get up there and be uncivil and be. I'm not agreeing with this the right. way that this is happening, but I think that's something. When, you know, when people say "Yay, waterboarding," I think about the fact like um, the mission, that mission, latest Mission Impossible movie is, is really, really good. This is something Gruber talked about on his show that I agree with. But you, you, you get you know 15 minutes into Rogue Nation and you go like, wait a minute, we're basically cheering for the NSA here. We're basically cheering for this, like, this secret rogue organization inside of the government. Like, we we love that when it's Tom Cruise going after the bad guys because he, he plays by his own rules. But so there's that same feeling we get, you know, and then we see when we see the government and... Uh, government, I hate when people say that. Well, you know, we see what's <laughs> happening at any level in federal government. But so, one other thing, though, um, have you watched the leftovers? Have we talked about this?
0: No, I'm I'm aware that it's a good show that I I need to get into. I just
1: well, I, all, uh, you don't need to know anything about it except okay. that all you all, all you really need to know is that there's something that happens. A bunch of the planet disappears without any explanation. Even three years later, no one knows why two percent of the population has disappeared. And so, Syracuse and I talked about this. But the thing that I think is so interesting about the I'm just to watch the, about to watch the last episode of season two. But all throughout, what's interesting about that show, and this is not a spoiler, is that um, the show is not really about, it is about the disappearance, but what it's, it's, you know, obviously, but what it's really about is how, in the absence of understanding that, how humans will tear themselves apart with their own need to try and have the world make sense. And so you have these cults that come up, you have these government things that come up. And that's, what, that's what's interesting to me is when you have like somebody like Nate Silver saying, well, hey, before we get... I'm not saying, he's not saying, like, don't worry about Trump, but he is saying, look at the numbers, look at Trump's negative numbers. And you start to realize that the number of people in, who will actually vote in November is like a slice of a slice. That his chances of getting elected are not actually that good for any variety of reasons, even setting aside that the, the GOP is going to, like, you know, go hammer tongs on this guy. But, like, what I'm worried about is what we do ourselves in the interim, you know, in the same way that we wouldn't want to throw out civil rights in order to beat an invisible foe. Right. I worry about the way that we will throw anything at the wall when we feel desperate about how politics are going. And that's—it's it's our own it's our own civility that I worry about. People say the most awful things about people, and, you know— I, the ones that I look at and the ones I link to are the ones where I think somebody has found a clever way to reframe this in a way that made it easier for – less difficult for me to understand. What I won't do is sit there and, like, just pile on, like, another – oh, it's just, it's just it's just another ha-ha thing because it, it's ugly and it's, it's getting uglier than ever and the two sides refuse to even try to understand each other. And, like, that's – so we tear ourselves apart, you know? I, I have been thinking a lot about
0: – um there is sort of an escalation this is on our side right uh, i think there's almost like an escalation of i don't know how to put it of like the the language of how bad everything is where it was like for, for two campaigns now the left has run so, you know they ran John McCain into the ground. They ran Mitt Romney into the ground, and these were moderate national candidates. And they were like, "These guys are racists, and they're fascists, and they're misogynists." And it was like this, and this, and this. And now you have someone running for president who has, in my opinion, openly advocated. You know, really. Bad things, really ugly things, where you may now want to have a conversation and say, this is actually, this is quite racist, the thing that he's saying. It's like institutionally a a racist policy to pursue. (laughs) And everyone says that, and it means nothing because we've been yelling. It's like the boy who cried sheep, right? And it's like everyone's been yelling this, and now it really is bad. Like he really is saying things that uh, to me are not compatible with – Really, what I think of as, like the 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 Democratic Republic, right? Like it's like these things that really challenge like how we're all going to live together in this country. Um, but the, the 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 thing that like is lately I'm just is keeping me up at night because we you know our primary Illinois' primary is coming up, and I I um I haven't decided if I'm you know I'm, I'm going to vote, and I haven't decided uh, nationally if I'm if I'm voting for for Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. Um, I'm like truly truly it's a toss up and i mean my here's my thought process is um i i actually think if today bernie sanders has a better chance of beating donald trump in a national election than than hillary clinton does but i also just don't know what kind of a president bernie sanders would make because i Ugh. feel like he has many of the same issues that donald trump has which is the, is this man an executive does he know things about foreign policy uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with him on social policy a lot, right? More than I do with with many of the candidates I've worked for. So, in well, it's some almost ways, like
1: it's like it's like finding somebody who's really like the the world's greatest player of video game baseball and imagining that they're going to be excellent in the big leagues. Where it's like, now that's, I know it's a bit of a stretch, but you know these these are not people who have. I mean, I, obviously Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has always been like. On the fringe, he's got a few really good ideas, a lot of like seemingly very interesting. Like in Model UN, he would be a very interesting guy to work with, but like I just don't know how that stuff's going to work in reality. Uh, ditto Trump, and as but as much as people have these feelings about Hillary Clinton, I believe that she can actually run something.
0: Oh, I there's no doubt in my mind that Hillary would be a very good executive for the country would we see, under a Clinton administration, would we see a lot, I mean, the issues that I I care about, um, so just to, to pick a few off the top of my head of, like, um, you know, more healthcare reform and, um, oh, information security and privacy and online privacy, I think we're kind of at a, a pretty critical, like, moment of that stuff. I, are we going to get a lot of progress on that stuff? I don't think so, under, under a Clinton administration. So it's like, I uh, I don't know. It's tough. And, and well, but
1: if you don't, if you let's say you're, you're, I don't know what Bernie Sanders' stance on that is, but let's say you have the best intentions in the world, do you have the ability to right. to whip the Congress into agreeing with you, or to you know,
0: right? And that's the and that's the question I'm starting. That's what I'm starting to think about. Is like, do I want to do I want to lose with Bernie, or do I want to win with Hillary? And uh, I don't know because there are some more. I mean, I, some days I look at the news and and there's some. You know, some statement that Hillary makes or something that is, just makes me roll my eyes. And I'm like, maybe, I don't know, maybe I want to lose with Bernie. But, but uh, it's
1: also it's also like Last Chance Kitchen in a lot of ways. Because as we've sit, sat here over the last few weeks and tried to speculate, we, we've all three of us talked about how we like Last Chance Kitchen kind of the best of this, you know, it's the best stuff this season. But each time we try to imagine what's going to happen in the future, we have to run through this very difficult array of... Of trying to figure out like who's going to be there, who's likely to be there, and then who would win versus a g- given person in a given melee. Do you know what I mean? It's not as simple as saying who's the best chef that if they get there they'll win all the way. There's some people who go head to head, and as we saw this week, was kind of shocking in Last Chance Kitchen in some ways. Where you know what I'm saying though, like that's the problem is like when you run through the array of these different combinations in terms of electability and who's going to be there and who you'd want. I just I I. I but I find myself just thinking, I don't like the way any of this goes. I thought Bernie Sanders sounded really amazing. Like seventeen-year-old me was going rah rah rah. I know. But now it's like I just.
0: It, isn't that the conflict? I mean, I'm. I mean, I'm right there myself. Of like my there's a there's a yeah, so that's the exact right way to put it. I'd love I'd love
1: him to run my city council.
0: Like seventeen-year-old Max is like so. I'm like I'm part of me is I want to say my heart is like maybe this is it. Maybe this is the moment where we get to have a national conversation about so many of these issues of money and politics and, and you know, privacy and all of these, you know, a referendum on the Bush legacy and the war in Iraq. Like, maybe this is the moment where where we get to have a national uh, conversation about it. Maybe we lose, but at least we lose fighting the good fight. And then there's my brain, which is like, yeah, but I don't want to lose, right? I don't want to lose a Supreme Court justice and have President Trump uh, a Supreme Court justice. And then the final thing is like you're saying of like trying to do this the, the last chance kitchen math on this is like i also see a scenario where the party you know it seems like this is what's going to happen right the party's going to go with hillary because we don't want to lose and uh, i don't know that it, you know uh, the there's a version in my imagination of of the hillary versus trump campaign where it's just so ugly and it's so nasty and so much money gets spent to tear everyone down and as a result the trump support, the trump diehard supporters who are kind of immune to criticism and scandal they just don't seem to give a shit about those conventional things they show up to vote right they're they're full you know plus 3 voters fully engaged like they're they're there on election day for Trump basically no matter what happens between now and November but a lot of our side, they watch this election unfold, and they're like, this is just repulsive, and they stay home. Because even though they hate Donald Trump— Right, and more
1: factors, 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 factors. Right. Also, it is so freaking early right now. I know. There are still so many grenades rolling around. Let me just—let me say something uh, terrible and ugly and obvious. Bernie Sanders is 74. I know. And he's not in the greatest of health. And the, the man is not— I I mean, I can't believe his his stamina is amazing, but he is 74. He would be if he got elected. He would be the oldest uh, person sworn in as as president. He's he's
0: not. I don't find him to be charismatic either. Like, I'm not moved. I, I agree with many of his policy positions, but I'm not moved when I hear him speak.
1: Well, but, but but I mean, I just mean in terms of like, who knows what could come up with him and his health? Who knows what comes up with Hillary Clinton and these investigations? Who knows what comes up with, you know, there's, like I say, it's just the way I was phrased. It. There's so many grenades that are still rolling around. And that's where my head really starts to swim is it's like, who knows? Because we've all been so focused on, oh, Donald Trump. When Trump's,
0: Trump's got the same thing of his um, uh, disclosures, right? He, the guy hasn't filed any financial disclosures and like, who the hell knows what Donald, what, what the tax situation is for for Donald Trump. Like, that is a crazy risk for the Republicans to take to, to have a candidate that hasn't done their financial disclosures. So final, I had one thing I pulled up, which is um, there's this amazing David Foster Wallace essay from the 2000, uh, I believe it's the 2000 campaign. It was Bush... Versus, uh, running in the primary against John McCain when George W. Bush was first the nominee. Is that 2000? Yeah, it is. It was the year 2000. So David Foster Wallace, uh, author that uh, um, uh, we both really like, uh, was embedded with the McCain campaign. He rode on the bus and traveled around and wrote about – he sort of covered what McCain talked about, but he really covered the press and the coverage of the election, and it was mm-hmm. sort of a story about American political process. And he had this really wonderful point at the end about – Um, Something that I hear a lot about online and a lot in my generation of this idea of the protest vote of not voting. Oh, I'm not going to vote. I'm going to stay home because the whole thing upsets me or or, uh, I don't believe in anyone. And this is is sort of my worst fear of like what happens when there's a nasty campaign between whoever and Donald Trump. Um, So this is the David Foster Wallace quote. He says – If you're bored and disgusted by politics and you don't bother to vote, you're in effect voting for the entrenched establishment of the two major parties who, please, rest assured, are not dumb and who are keenly aware that it is in their interest to keep you disgusted and bored and cynical and to give you every possible reason to stay at home doing one-hitters and watching MTV on primary day. By all means, stay home if you want, but don't bullshit yourself that you're not voting. In reality, there is no such thing as not voting. You either vote by voting, or you vote by staying home and tacitly doubling the value of some diehards' vote. Yikes! Isn't that? Ugh. Yeah, I know. That's pretty good. Okay, I he's a smart guy, good writer. Man, I read that. I read David Foster Wallace stuff sometimes, and I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, that's so good. There's Some little turn of phrase or a little sentence, and I'm like,
1: the way he writes, it's all just it's all just lying in plain sight. You know, it's it's so it's so. Um, insightful and observant and yet so readable yeah you just don't get that combination that that often
0: wow two white guys who love uh, david foster uh, wallace here we are
1: uh, the very brave brave stance
0: <laughs> big stance mm. uh, let me um all right one more thing before we get to top do we have time or can we talk can i ask you another another uh, totally random off topic thing yeah we're only half hour in go all right so i got a big uh, life decision to make that i'm thinking oh about let me i'm curious what your what your thoughts are so I was approached, uh, I gave a talk um, a couple months ago at uh, Northwestern Law School, uh, which is a very good law school uh, here in Chicago, and I got approached by uh, the dean of a program at Northwestern called the MSL. It's the master, it's a program called the Master of Science in Law. So it's basically a one, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, a, a you could do it full time in a year, master's program in law. So it's not a JD, it's less than a JD, but you take law classes and you learn some stuff about about Uh, practicing law like how to read contracts and business stuff and you know just uh, legal fundamentals Um, and you can uh, do it or you can do it part time and stretch it out over you know two three four years and take you know classes a couple nights a week or something like that so I've sort of been uh, I don't know if it's if it's technically they've been recruited but like they approach they were like hey I think you'd be a really good fit for this program and you should really apply Um, and I'm sort of have this thing in front of me the application deadline is coming up and man, there's like I can't tell you how attractive that sounds to me. Is that a is that like a what do you think? Is that a crazy thing to do? How do you, I mean? I, I guess I don't know. I mean, I what do you I don't know, know? How if that's you a do you do that and, run,
1: and help run a company?
0: Well, uh, the other, I mean, let, let's say, I mean, let's say that I could do cards in forty hours a week. That I could contain my my work for my business into forty fifty hours a week. And you know, I already have stuff that I'm doing, like you know, podcasts and nonprofit stuff and political campaigns that I already do on the side. So this would sort of take the place of that for a couple of years. So at schedule wise, I think it's possible. I just, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm sort of wondering. Like, I don't. I, I'm just at a point in my life where I'm, I'm not sure how to decide. Like, uh, I don't know. Is this what I want to? I guess it's. I, I'm sort of at a loss of how to even approach this. Of like,
1: I would. <clears throat> if it were me, yeah. <coughs> I would I would take the youthful energy and enthusiasm you have and keep pushing that into uh, lots of interesting mini projects, and then when you finally uh, get all wrung out by life, mm-hmm. uh, that would be a great time to take two years to go to school. You think so? Well, I mean, I don't know. I uh, yeah, that seems. I don't know what. Well, what, how are you? How are you feeling? My my, my gut would be don't do it, even though it so? sounds great. Well, I don't know. You you have to decide, but it seems to me like when you you have the enthusiasm and the resources apparently to do so many little interesting mini projects i would hate to lose you um from those kinds of projects you know to to go to school
0: well so here's my i mean here here's here's the plus side of doing it so uh, when i think about a lot of the people who i really look up to who are you know sort of mentors to me or or i really think they're they're the best at what they do or whatever especially in the world of like Politics and nonprofits and that kind of a thing, they all have law degrees to a person. Like some of the smartest, best people I know have law degrees. Uh, People who are really good writers have law degrees. Like it's just a way of – I don't know. I feel like there's some – it's a it's some magic to it of like it's a way of looking at the world or a way of thinking that has some power to it. Mm-hmm. And this is not getting a law degree, and it's not get, you know passing the bar and, and all of that. It's way is short of that. Is this the
1: MSL program?
0: It's called the M- yeah Northwestern MSL.
1: Okay, I think I found
0: it. Yeah, um, and uh, but it's like maybe this is a not maybe this is a little bit that it's like well I get to I get to get a little bit of that perspective. And I will say like I've been doing you know cards I'm coming up on uh, it's been about five years since we started working on cards and we've we've been um, you know I was, I was actually talking to um, of, uh, you know we've, we've hired a bunch of people and the company's gotten pretty big and I, I went to a friend of mine um, a campaign manager who was you know one of the best campaign managers I've ever worked for and, and ran a bunch of big congressional campaigns that scaled up really quickly and I was like, Pat. How the hell do you do this? Like, how do you make a good organization and have everyone show up with purpose and know what to do every day? Because I don't know any of this stuff. Like, I don't really, I don't know. I never, I don't, I don't even know how you learn those things, right? And Pat was, and I was. Pat was. We started going through how we've organized cards, and cards is very much organized like a political campaign. So we have these small little autonomous teams that roughly correlate with the teams on a political campaign, and. People, you know, they they we work really hard and we throw ourselves at these walls and do th- set these big goals and we're very deadline-driven and everything is sort of in a last-minute panic, but we also don't compromise on anything. And Pat was like, well, this is great. I mean, you've sort of translated the political campaign to running a company, but he's like, these people are going to burn out. Like, the thing about a campaign is it's, it lasts for nine or ten months. You can't run a political campaign for five years. And uh, I'm definitely definitely feeling that. Like there's a lot of mornings hmm. I wake up and I'm like, maybe I should open a hot dog stand.
1: Yep. I see what you're saying. Um, yeah. See, I don't know. I don't know anything about how you, but you, this is all, this is the most education I've ever gotten about how your company works. But, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I always figured it was just like a big tree house. You guys ordered out lunch and you made some cards,
0: man. It's hard. Uh, It's really, I, I I'll say like it's for a game company and a comedy company. Like it's the, it's a, it's a hard job. Like everyone here is working really hard. There's no – there's not a lot of tolerance for making mistakes. Uh, we have really tight, like,
1: message discipline. Like, it's a tough – it's a tough job. So, I, I don't – I don't yeah. – I, I, I completely believe that. So in some ways, it would almost be mm, – break is the wrong word, but it would be – could be a well-timed change of pace in your life.
0: Yeah, and that's how I'm feeling. And the other thing is – well, maybe – I mean, I think what you said is – I mean, you, you, hit the, the, you hit the dilemma right on the head of, like, right, of, like, well, I'm already pretty time consumed. I'm already 10 minutes late to every time we record a podcast. So it's like, how the hell do I cram going to school into there? But maybe this is the maybe this is the sort of moment when I need to be like, well, what's really important here? Are all of these, as you said, the mini projects that I'm doing, which are fun, right? I wake up and I'm like a little bit manic or whatever. And I'm like, I should make a zine or I should make a <laughs> Top Chef podcast with Merlin, right? I'm in the shower and I'm like, I could do anything. I had just the right amount of coffee. So you're laying
1: on your back. You've had your back relaxers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i 'm dictating my old western dialogues to the writer 's room right yeah. and it 's like but but ultimately it 's like and I love doing those things and i 'm I think they 're good, and I think a lot of good has come of them but i 've also learned like so here 's a big lesson i 've learned from from the mini projects no um uh, what my friend uh, Dinah Kimball described as life projects, meaning don't take any projects on where the answer is you'll do it for the rest of your life. How will you know it's done? Well, you'll do it for the rest of your life.
1: Oh, that is smart.
0: So any project that I do, including this podcast, the little zine project I'm working on, all these little side projects, I, I, it is a part of the planning process to say, how will I know when I'm done? And um, so it's not as though... You know, and, but so it's not as though I'm I'm like locked into these things, right? Like I have, I do have things, you know, things free up in my life. But then the question is like, is that a good life? Like, do I want to look back in 10 years and be like, I did a, lo- a lot of mini projects? I
1: don't know. Mm, well, <clears throat> it sounds like this is, the MSL thing is a good opportunity for your mind to tickle you with the concept that you might need a change or be ready for a change. Hmm. Like, like MSL, something specific that's very laudatory, gives you a good reason, like, a, like, who who could argue with you doing that? But it could be also that your brain is telling you you need some kind of a change.
0: Do you do you ever have that concern with I mean, I feel like your your work in the last few years is sort of doing, you know, what, four or five podcasts, right? Right. So those are in a sense, each of those is a is a mini project. Does that, do you ever yeah. think about
1: that? Of like, what is this? Where yeah, we, sure. I'm sorry. I have been. I was talking to John Roddick for two hours and I don't have any voice left. I um. <laughs> I do think about that. And I think that's one way I learned to not become a crazy person with any kind of project was, you know, like you said in your words, like, you know, decide how long you're going to do this and what it looks like to be done. The difficult thing with something like this or your mini projects or, or whatever is that, you know, when we get busy with all of those things, it seems like the last thing we can afford to do is think about whether we should be doing them because we're supposed to be busy with doing everything. And, you know, so I try to have a rough barometer for when something, I don't know, it's a little tickle you get. that You're going, hmm, I wonder if this is still going to be a thing. And then you think about doing other things. And the nice thing about doing lots of things is that you don't have to do all the things because you have a little bit of slack to say, well, maybe that thing's not going to be. It's sort of resource leveling, like existential uh, resource leveling. yeah. I think that's that's a thing. I just I, l- I like most of the things I do and I think they're going pretty well. I don't know what else I could do. Um Well I'll say but, write a book. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that's a good use of my time. <laughs> I could do that. I could write a book.
0: Uh <laughs> you know, I don't know. So it's like I don't wanna try and make a uh, a foie gras torch on in uh, three hours. Oh brother. But uh I'm thinking about I I don't know. I'm just uh uh, I don't know. I'm, maybe this is like like starting to feel old or something. But I'm well, starting to I'm starting to like I'm just like, you know the the end of the year or I whenever you sort of have that moment of reflection of like what what can I what have I done you know mm-hmm. is it am I going to point to a lot of small projects and be like wow this really this really did something,
1: but you know there's a thought technology that you could adopt which is to uh, just gently. Incline yourself to have permission that you're allowed to start going hmm more often, like if you just said for the next next couple months I'm going to go hmm more often, where that's hmm about like is this really how I want to be spending 16 hours a week on this particular thing, or hmm that's this MSL thing sure is interesting. Like just you know to me you have to you have to change your modality. And One has to change one's modality. You don't have to because most of us just wait until something falls on our head and then we just deal with it. And it's, you know, it's a big, you know, drama. But like, you know, one thing you might want to do is just say, okay, I wonder what else are things that I could think about. But that takes a certain amount of courage because you feel like you're being disloyal or you feel like you're being, you know, duplicitous with all these things you've committed to. But like, I think, it, you know, maybe, maybe one thing to do is just say, hmm, a little more often
0: yeah that's interesting i'm definitely i mean i'm i think a i think a thing well here's a here's a back to work uh uh to, i know you guys love taking uh, listener suggestions for uh, yes, back uh, to work you there um but uh uh, what about, uh, here, you know, something I, I've really been struggling a lot with is like how to say no to things. So like right. someone, um, a, a, someone who's running a startup, um, will email me and they're like, I, Hey, I would love to connect. Can we go get lunch? And I would love to like pick your brain and talk to you. And, and I don't know what a business people, they, they connect with each other. Or, you know, a, a, it's like the, I want to add you to my professional network on in LinkedIn, but in real life. Right. Um, and I want to I, I kill
1: half of a day to do whatever.
0: Right. And and these meetings, well, they're always like, well, I know you're really busy, but we could just meet for – get a coffee for a half hour. And, of course, that's never the case because you have to get there and it's like, well, you have to say hello for 10 minutes and make small talk. And then you, it's like it, you're never going to get anything done in 30 minutes. But it's like I used to – there was a time in my life when, I don't know, maybe I was – one way to look at it is – I was dumber, and another way to look at it is I was I was hungrier and tr- was trying harder. But I did I said yes to everything, any opportunity that came across my plate or anything at all, anyone who wanted to connect or waste my time or get advice, anything at all. I was just like, yes, let's do it. I'm gonna make the most of this, and most of it was a dud. But sometimes something great came of it. And I'm am I'm, it's re- it's, I'm finding it so hard to say no to someone.
1: I find I, it very hard, and it uh it eats me up inside and so i'll get emails and i'll say Ugh, i'm not ready to deal with this yet i'll snooze this till tomorrow and then a few more things happen like over this weekend i had like six emails from people that were like stuff i didn't want to say no to but i just i didn't want to say anything because now the balls in my court like somebody asked me to go to a thing or do a thing or have a coffee or whatever and it's like you know and it sounds so fancy and it sounds so unkind but it's like you know if i said yes to half of these things uh i would not be able to get anything done and i don't even do that much i mean i, I don't know how people say yes to as many things as they do but i find it extremely hard to do um we're like you know but i also try to be open so like hey you know my friend is a big fan of roderick on the line could you call him on his birthday like please don't please don't please don't, please don't too many don't too many people ask but yeah i'll do that i will totally do that please that's don't, really please don't ask. that's really sweet that was, that was probably a dumb thing to say on the air because I, I do try to do that. I put it on the calendar and I do it. After Alex lighted all this out, don't worry. No, no, no. Leave it in. It's fine. I, I have to get better at learning to say no. And one of the biggest problems is I feel, like I feel guilty that I even can say no because I know how busy, busy, busy everybody is. And I feel, I don't know, I feel, I feel sad and a little bit put upon when something goes into my court where now I have to be the dick. I feel terrible about that, right? Like, no, I I can't have coffee with you, and and I can't. It's not it's not you that I can't have coffee with. It's I can't have coffee with the world, because I gotta be places. Like, you know, you know me, right? I'm time constrained. It's not I'm not busy, but like I've I've spent forty nine years trying to not be busy, so that I can merely be time constrained. But like, it's just the whole day just fills up with stuff, and now I've got meta stuff. So now I'm sitting around on Sunday night looking at my email and feeling bad, you know. And like, it's I'm terrible at it, but you know, I mean. One one part of it is and I will sometimes say this to people is that you know honestly if this did work out great I wouldn't have time to do it. And if I did have time to do it, I'm not sure I, I probably couldn't do a very good job of this right now. I just couldn't take this on. What I will say is like if you have something specific that you want to ask somebody if so like if you want somebody if you want me to call your friend on his his or her birthday, just email me, but send me the phone number, tell me when the birthday is. Don't say can I ask you a question? Okay. Yes, you can ask me a question. <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you if I could uh, ask you if I could ask you to call my friend on their birthday. Okay, go ahead and ask. Okay, is it okay if I ask you that? Same kind of person that goes like, "Oh, I'm very interested in your website about entrepreneurs. Uh, can I send you a link?" It's like I want to strangle you so could, hard. Could you
0: book me as a guest on your uh, podcast?
1: But you know, yeah. if you if your pitch is to somebody like, why are we having this coffee? Just because like. I mean, no, and I I don't want to be mean because I like people, but like I I don't know you. Like, what is this about? It's like if if you why don't you just write to me and say, hey, will you publicize my company for free? Because that's really what you want. That I can say no to. What's harder is I don't know what that person wants to talk about. Maybe they're having a very difficult time in life and they feel like I'm the only person they can talk to that's a lot of responsibility for me, but it does happen. It's just that there's so much stuff where like it all has to be processed and answered and like apportioned. And, you know, for every, like, you know, you're asking for this thing, but like you don't know how many other people are asking for things too. And it's not very civil for me to even be here talking about it, but it's like, it doesn't take that much of that before I feel very overwhelmed and busy. And I hate feeling busy, especially if my being busy is to tell people that I'm too busy to do things because I'm too busy. (laughs) It's gross
0: right and and uh, so you said there was there was also you know one of the things honestly that that uh was a big um I, I don't know it was an important thing for me to hear was uh uh let's see it was uh back to work uh episode two fifty one managoy, where you and Dan were talking about busy versus time constrained, and you were talking about this whole i don't know there's a can't remember how how you called it, but there's a, a this idea of that important people. There's a stat. There's busyness as a status signifier, as cultural capital, right? Of like, oh, I must right. be important and cool because I'm busy all the time, and I'm you know talk talk about how busy I am and and complain about it, and oh, it's, how are you doing? Oh, I'm so busy, and it is kind of obnoxious when people say that, but the really obnoxious thing, which I catch myself doing all the time, is when you're really busy and you're constantly telling people that and it becomes an excuse for things in your life, and then you're still 10 minutes late and unprepared when you show up to the meeting. It's like, well, if you're going to be busy when you commit to something, you better fucking show up and have your notes with you.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. It it is. I think it is a kind of almost required um, modern affliction to be busy and talk about how busy you are where you're you're almost meant to feel like you're underachieving or lazy or you're just not doing it right like how could you how could you not be unhappy right now like why why are you <laughs> what what why haven't you worked as hard as me to make your life untenable And it's, it's, that's how I, that's how I feel sometimes. And like, uh, you know, it's just, I think there is a a difference between being busy and being time constrained. We all get busy and busy is when we haven't kept track of what all is due. And now there's just, you know, too much poop to fit into the the two pound bag. (laughs) Like that, that happens to everybody. But like to think that you have to have and telegraph that feeling all the time in order to feel competent, let alone successful is, it's a very troubling idea to me, and I don't think we talk about it. Oh, we we talk about how we got so busy, and we're so busy and busy. But like, but it doesn't. It's the like same as people saying, "Like, oh, I should get more sleep," but they never do. Oh, I should get less busy, and they never do because they're going to feel like like they're just going to fall apart if they don't have that stress that they can share with people all the time.
0: Well, and the, and the other, I think the thing, the weird thing that everyone fixates on, and we do talk about, is like, uh, oh, what do, what workflow extensions should I install on my phone to save a few seconds of like you know. Um, Logging into this form or downloading YouTube video, like what are the the hacks and the productivity tips and things like that? And I always, it's like, you know, I sometimes I catch myself going down that rabbit hole because it beats working when you get to fiddle with that stuff. But then it's like, well, to what end? It's like you're going to save all this time to do what? Just to be more busy, to have more, you know, to connect with people more, like do more bullshit or work harder? It's like, at what point does I mean, and, and this is—I guess this is—at the heart of like, I'm trying to—I'm thinking about this this MSL thing is like starting to look pretty good. Of like, well, at least it's something. It's like, well, I get this credential at the end of it, and I am going to learn something, and and possibly, you know, there's be, see see some new some new possibilities in life, or so I don't know. Who knows what comes out of it? But at least it's like it's like something.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a thing. But. You know, like I say, I, I think it would not hurt for you just to be, and this is always my advice ultimately, is to be a little softer on yourself and say, well, you know, maybe you can just allow yourself to be in a little bit of an exploratory mode. I think a lot of us are afraid to not be busy because now we don't have anything specific to be anxious about, which causes a kind of meta-meta anxiety because like now you're like, oh my gosh, what should I be freaked out about right now? Well, I guess I'll be freaked out about how I'm not busy. Like what's wrong with that?
0: Wow, that really uh, cuts uh, right to the heart of it. Well, this uh, let's do our let's do a quick sponsor break. This uh, emotional soul searching <laughs> is uh, brought to you by uh, Backblaze, uh, the uh, number one uh, crippling social insight uh, backup tool for uh, anxious introverts. Uh, <laughs> who. Can- <laughs> who care about their uh, – God, I hope they don't listen to this program – who uh, care about their data integrity because uh, once you've achieved that level of efficiency and you have all your uh, textmate made shortcuts, uh, you don't want to lose that. So uh, Backblaze, uh, I don't think we have uh, – uh, we've been doing these uh, sort of uh, weekly chats with Yev, uh, with our friend Yev from Backblaze. We're asking some questions. I don't know. I don't think we have that because uh, I think I'm editing this uh, podcast. Uh, but uh, – we can just talk uh talk a little bit about Blackblaze for a second Backblaze.
1: we can talk about black Blaze and and tell them a little bit about like what it actually is and why you why you need this every every day somebody's born who's never heard Top Scallops. absolutely
0: uh Backblaze or uh as they uh, as they will call it sometimes black Blaze, uh it is the uh, unlimited unthrottled
1: back <laughs> they hate service. us they hate us so much for perpetuating
0: well us. they bought the thing so they must not hate us yeah, that much yeah but now they got to
1: do 301s for everything that's true
0: uh, it's the uh, unlimited, unthrottled backup service for your Mac or PC. It's uh, listen, like I love this thing. Like in terms of, I mean, uh, to 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 be quite honest, like this is this is as much as I'll, I'll sometimes you know I'm, I'm complaining about like productivity stuff. This is like kind of the rare tech thing of like it just comes along and solves this problem so that you you don't have to worry about it and you don't have to do any other shortcuts. It's a little program It runs on your computer. It backs up all your stuff, and you literally never have to think about it. And if your computer gets lost or stolen or damaged or whatever, they'll send you a hard drive with all your data on it. It's a, it's like a perfect, perfect, perfect service, and you can just totally sort of outsource this whole concern of of data integrity, let Backblaze handle it, and uh, it's it, 100% of the time – I've ever needed this thing. It just comes through and works perfectly.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a strange kind of product to recommend to somebody because it's it's one of those things like what, like having insurance or a smoke alarm or something like that where you won't really derive the full value out of this until your life is in shambles. But like once it is, you're really going to want this. What what I'm going to suggest in general is that you, I would suggest having Backblaze alongside several different kinds of backup. But even, let's say you want, let's, so right now, what's your idea of backup? Your idea of backup is probably the same idea as mine in about 1988. I'll drag a copy of this to the desktop. Well, that's not really backup for a variety of reasons. You, you want to have some backup that's local. You want to have some backup that's automatic. You want to have some backup that's off-site. You want all these different kinds of things. And Backblaze is, if you only go with one, this is not a bad one to go with because you literally just turn it on and then forget about it. And what I will do periodically, though, is I will go in. And so essentially anything that you've got attached that is like a mountable um, hard drive will get backed up to Backblaze for that same price every month. And you can go in and test it. You can go in and say, just show me these kinds of files that, were, that have been updated in the last day. Show me those. Restore them. You can get the stuff sent to you on a hard drive if, it's, if you ever lose your hard drive, God forbid. But just the, I just want you to know like this does not cost a lot of money. It is very easy to install. And, it's, uh, uh, it's in fact, it's $5 per month per device. It's, it's bananas. And you can go in and add your, own, uh, add your own encryption key on top of it for a little bit of extra security, uh, if you're thinking about that kind of stuff nowadays. And uh, it just it just does it for you, and it's dynamite. We talked before about how you can go in, and uh, once you've got an account, you can go in and it runs a little Ookla speed test that'll let you know how long it'll take to do your full backup. The first initial backup might take you days, weeks, even a month, but then it's all incremental. I don't even notice it running. It just it just goes in the background, and just it just goes up into the cloud all by itself, but you know, you may not think you need it today, but you're gonna need it. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to fud you. I'm not trying to scare you. You're gonna need this someday, so go ahead and do it now while while you still have a role in protecting your data.
0: Man, that's that is advice. I wish that uh, there's been a few times in my life where I've like had total data loss. Of like in college, I had a, a computer. You know, I had a hard drive crash and just lost a ton of work. And uh, man, that's advice. I, it's the kind of advice that. Until you've been through it, I think it's really hard to take seriously. But boy, I wish someone had sort of like shook me and said, back, back up, please. Come up with something. Um, well, for uh, if you want to give Backblaze a try, uh, if you're somehow inexplicably listening to this podcast and you don't have Backblaze running, uh, Backblaze is offering a free trial for listeners of the Top Scallops podcast at backblaze.com scallops. And uh, of course, our thanks to Backblaze for sponsoring the uh, Top Scallops podcast.
1: Thanks, Backblaze. monk. Monk.
0: There we go. All right. Let's uh also, we...
1: also just for what it's worth. Yes. My uh my daughter finds it utterly perplexing that we would ask the Mexicans to pay for the wall. <laughs> she's she's eight and she thinks it's not feasible. Uh it's like again, it's like this stuff is like it just doesn't <laughs> hold up to any scrutiny. It doesn't. Like, have you ever been to places? Yeah. Have you ever done things? Yeah, this is – it's something like something out of a Terry Gilliam movie. It's
0: its a little – I don't know. It's a little crazy. It's just this – I have to – if I'm being charitable, I have to guess that there is something that people hear in that that, it, that is not at face value but that means something to them. You know, there's some coded message and we're going to make them pay for it that I'm not hearing but it makes perfect sense. It clicks with people and they're like, fuck yeah, that is exactly what someone should be saying. Yep. Boy, I'd love to – Figure that out. But uh let's uh let's get into uh what the, the uh sensible point of this podcast, which is uh the exciting conclusion of the regular season of uh Top Chef. Bum bum bum. Uh so this week we had the uh last quick fire with uh judged by guest judge Tracy DeJardin, who I, I think she was on uh, Masters, I think, Top Chef Masters.
1: Um and uh her She's the one at the the commissary place? she She's the the place in the Presidio. You're talking about the quick fire.
0: The quick fire. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right, right, right.
0: Yep. And that was her place. That's right. They were cooking yeah. at her restaurant. That's right. Uh, so the challenge that they had was to make a sort oh of... Um, mm. This was a... this was a. Let's go ahead and say it. They got to make artisanal toast. It was a stupid challenge. I did not like this. It's like now in Chicago, uh, I go everywhere has like a, an avocado toast on the menu. And I feel oh, like...
1: It's such a thing here.
0: Yeah. It's uh, whatever. I mean, I, I certainly don't object to like eating toast with stuff on it that's uh
1: that's the part that bugs me is like when we were in new zealand five years ago uh we discovered what what people in new zealand call toasties and you know what a toasty is a toasty is a piece of toast with stuff on it my wife fell in love with this idea of going beyond like butter and jam or something like but there's all kinds of lovely little things you can make you take a piece of toast and you put things on it. it's called a toasty that's adorable but that's you take something that's a perfectly fun idea, and then you try to make it small batch and bespoke, and it's completely annoying.
0: Yeah, and no, it's just you know. Here's the thing with this: I this is how I eat at home. You know, fifty percent of the time, right? I'm I'm in a hurry. I slice make a slice of bread and throw some. You know, make a make a open face sandwich or a, a toasty or some sort of breakfast thing. It's easy. I it's you can do it quickly. It's sort of low maintenance. Not what not what anyone's watching Top Chef for to see like a high end toast. Like it's just I don't know. I did really enjoy when they were explaining this challenge that they cut to a Mar and he just had like completely unbridled d- just r- disgust and repulsion at the <laughs> concept of the toast challenge. Like he was just grimacing and rolling his eyes at having to d- d- lower himself to this level. So definitely, uh, uh, you know, on trend for the season of Top Chef, but a just a a, a, a pretty stupid challenge. And then to uh, sort of the salt in the wound here was that it was an elimination challenge. So oh, they, you mean it was a double elimination? It was a double elimination. Uh, they were eliminating uh, themselves. So D- double uh, people. They were. Uh, 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 it's like that uh, line from The Wire that I always think about is like uh, a person evacuates a building, or what is it? A building is people Evacuation? evacuate a building. A, uh, a person is evacuated.
1: Oh, that's good. You know, it's like good. that.
0: It's that, it's that kind of thing of like... The, this is my rifle, this is my gun. It's like the double elimination. And it always makes me think they're going to go to the bathroom twice. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> it's oh like, in addition to not being
1: what double elimination <laughs> means in a game, it's a little weird. It's like, oh, it's uh, a... I wish they'd stop the games. <laughs> It's a I wish they would just stop stop the little games. You know, whatever. I guess it's okay. But, I mean, for that important of a challenge, is it really going to be something that flimsy? a oh, fucking piece of toast. To go home... I would be so mad if I went home on a piece of toast if I got to the finale of Top Chef. Um, and one thing that really, through this whole episode, you could really tell the word had gone down with the producers that this one was going to be all about stress and worry, sturm and drang. Like, make sure everybody is constantly talking about how nervous they are.
0: Right. Uh, so, overall, I felt like this that the seriousness the or I don't know what there's just the int- the stakes you really felt the stakes of this episode for all of the contestants yes. and i like that like i i don't know i i like people t- you know it's like um something um uh something pat roth the author uh, pat roth has taught me we we uh one of the the first like podcast things i ever did was um kind of like this how we're watching top chef um, um, uh, the, uh, my friend Patrick and I did a podcast about Lost and we were just, we watched season one of Lost and just talked about that show but we really tried to, you know, like the Top Chef podcast we were really trying to think about it from the writer, from behind the scenes, right what was going right and why was it so we we're, were really trying to like appreciate it and understand it for the time it came out and we talked to a lot of people who were involved in the production of Lost and behind the scenes to sort of get the inside scoop super interesting, but um, one of the most interesting interviews was my friend Patrick Rothfuss was the guest on Lost, and he had never seen the show, so it was really interesting. We sort of explained it to him, and we were like, "I'm curious what, what Pat thinks about just as a as a story, a person who writes stories and an author, you know, what what happened here with the critical, with the fans revolting against it, and people not being happy with how it ended, and and you know, what do you make of it?" And as we were sort of telling Pat about the show and explaining this whole thing to him, he's like, "Well, I see the problem immediately, which is." Um, in a compelling piece of drama, uh, when the characters want something badly enough, you want it too as the reader. You can't help it. It's the human mind. It's like it's the framing thing that we were talking about before, right? It's like stories are an incredible frame. And when you start to watch Lost through the frame of the show and the characters want to get off the island, you start to want it as badly as the characters in the show do if it's well written. And then when Lost would have all of these crazy plots that weren't them getting off the island – after a while, as a viewer, you were like, "What the fuck are you doing? Would you, would you, would you please pursue the a plot? Like, let's right. go, let's go, like get off this island." So that was where Pat was like, "You know, uh, 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 you know." Much respect to the writers for making something for for ratcheting up the tension, making you care about it and invest in the drama as much as you did. Well, for me, this episode of Top Chef was like much, much in the same way of Lost, of like. The people really wanted it this week you You got a sense of how important it was to them, how much they didn't want to fail on um you know the last episode of the regular season, you know the last episode before the break, everyone was leaving it all on,
1: on the field, yeah, the whole sense and, of we've come this far,
0: yeah, and I bought into that i really was I was gripped by this episode in a way that um, I wasn't like also looking at my phone while I watched this episode, like I was into this episode in a way I wasn't into the rest of the season, so i guess I guess that kind of worked for me, yeah,
1: Because yeah. the characters wanted it, right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the the uh the characters all, you know, took it took it very seriously, obviously. But um yeah, yeah. And then, you know, just all the explaining, there's all the explaining about how to ch- pick a bread and explaining about how you don't <laughs> want it to get soggy and Oh,
0: Tracy Dardagen is a, a a huge deal. Oh, in she's the San a Francisco legend. Culinary she's a, she's a legend. Yeah. Uh, so we see a marmaid uh Foie gras, uh, duck, and uh, fig jam on a toast. Marjorie made a uh, Dungeness crab on sourdough. Carl made a shrimp and burrata, which, oh, God, I felt so bad as he was doing it. Poor Carl, this episode. I like know. really, He really, everything, all of his mistakes were extremely well telegraphed as he was doing them. He looked, you know, as he was doing this, he's like, uh, you know, you don't ever put fish and cheese together, but uh, I'm, I'm doing it, and it's a thing in Italy, the shrimp and burrata, and you're like— oh this poor guy like what a don't it, it it it's one of the if you've learned nothing else from this season it's that because it's sometimes eaten doesn't mean it's the best way to go like that right. doesn't defend the dish being poorly conceived uh, Jeremy did a, a chicken liver mousse um, very simple and kind of uh, um, not as as overworked as some of the other ones and Isaac did a prosciutto and a roasted red pepper sauce that was not a romesco he not,
1: a a a well, this, not a romesco not a romesco romesco-esque
0: um, uh, one of my favorite comments of the season, another great, uh, uh, I can't remember what you call it, but, uh, uh, I hope when everyone was saying, uh, I hope it doesn't sog out. Yeah. that's almost as good as, uh, it eats, Yeah, it yeah, eats yeah, a little salty. It eats soggy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't sog it out. Right. Oh boy. And then, um, yeah. And then, uh, Jeremy of course won with his, um, very straightforward chicken liver mousse. Definitely the way, like, listen, if you're making a piece of toast, keep it simple. Yeah, totally. You know, don't, don't fight the format. Absolutely. Right? And then Jeremy, in line with my uh, Jeremy is Donald Trump uh, 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 theory, he just – Jeremy's comment was just like – he says of uh, Carl and Amar who are eliminated uh, or have to go – they have to battle each other um, uh, to uh, see who gets sustained. He goes,
1: I'm just glad these two are gone because that's one last beast to burn through. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, I also – I mean in keeping with that theme though, I did get the feeling that they were burning off a lot of like nervous energy. It must be, you know. There's all. This is one of those ones where I'm like, "Wow, I wonder was going on behind the scenes." This seems, this did seem actually very, very intense. We've never seen Marjorie cry before, you know. I guess just getting that far, you just, you're just worried all the time.
0: Well, and and from the film, I, I'm almost sure from the film schedule perspective, like you know, you get to take a break after this episode. Like oh. you've been on on the road for whatever however many weeks, and now it's like this is it. It's the last day of shooting. It's the final day, and there is that sense of relief of like, oh I can finally let my guard down a little bit because it's almost When we get over.
1: further along you're gonna to have to explain to me how how and where the next last chance is there another last chance kitchen? Yes. That that's going to be okay. Well,
0: let, let, we'll get to that in Last Chance Kitchen. I have a couple, I, a few things I noticed this week that that I'm starting to figure out the, the production schedule. Oh, good! Of. This is my favorite part. Yeah, I got, I got, a little inside things that I noticed. Uh, so let's see. so for the uh, double elimination, um, uh, it was only uh, Amar and Carl had to go to the bathroom twice in the uh, quick fire to see who would uh, eliminate. Mm. And mm. Uh, Carl uh, made a crudo, which I was thinking boy, that's a mistake. Like, there's been a lot of people called out for making a crudo. Yeah,
1: well, didn't he say, like, no, who who was the one who said, like, oh, I almost made a crudo? Because uh, Jeremy, I think, maybe. Somebody said, I almost made a crudo because everybody's done really well with crudos. And I was like, mm, I don't know. I got the feeling the judges are a little sick of seeing crudos. Yeah, it's
0: it's been the, the, the sort of jokey go-to food this season. And uh, Amar, I thought, Comported himself. I mean, this is again—you don't get to taste the food, right? So all you get is what you see in the in the in, as a viewer, what you see that makes the final cut. But amar appeared to have comported himself extremely well. Like he—he was—he really. I watching him, I got this sense that he was—he just got into like a flow state of like he was improvising. He was grabbing ingredients that look good. He did the technique that we've seen before of cooking a lot of things and then just putting the good parts on the plate. Mm-hmm. He made that – he improvised that plum sauce that looked – See, I don't know. It seemed really unexpected and, and exciting and had a, a really nice piece of fish. But uh, – uh, oh, and then, uh, of course, the judges made fun of the crudo. Padma was like, another crudo, huh? <laughs> but uh, uh, surprise, Amar was out. Um, and uh, at that point, they send uh, Amar to Last Chance Kitchen. And Tom, in the quick fire, which is the first time – uh or in the show i mean like plugs last chance kitchen of like oh you can always come back in last chance kitchen and the way they sold that did it make you think that maybe they were setting amar up as like a ringer like that this was a little bit produced of like they think amar is coming they sent him home in a in a on a you know slice of toast challenge but then they're setting him up to come back through last oh King like chance maybe kitchen? that's the kind of
1: thing alex was talking about where they shoot they shoot uh coverage and then right. put in parts that are interesting so that would that's supposed to mean something
0: a little bit, yeah. Like they're trying to construct a plot for them, a comeback plot mm. for Amar, uh, for themselves. Interesting.
1: I like this theory. Um,
0: it's possible. It just get, the way they sold the Last Chance Kitchen of like a little wink to the camera of like, but you can always come back. Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, hmm, interesting. Uh, let's see. So then we go to uh, Hubert Keller. Oh uh, boy. G- Jeremy says he's a
1: fucking legend. He's a legend, Max. Legend. Uh, I do like him. I like he's him pretty too. Cool. And Flirtily is, cool. is a pretty big deal. Have you been there? No. I have not, but uh, my wife tells me it's re- it's very good. She's been there. Well, you know, my wife in one of her not previous careers, but places she's worked, she did a lot of. Um, she basically worked for the dean of the medical school and did uh, special events for him, and uh, so you ended up doing some very interesting special events. So she's she a lot of the places that you hear about on here, she has done events there, and uh, you know sometimes we would like get invited to a tasting or something like that, but no, she only wakes me up for the important meetings, but. <laughs> but yeah, Florida is a pretty big deal. <laughs> well, boy, you uh, you screwed that up because I think you missed your uh, your window. Oh, Z. You know what sucks though is uh, I don't know when they showed the dining room and it was like, oh my god, this place is just so amazing. You feel like you're transported to another time. I was like, yeah, you're transported to like 1972 at my aunt's house. <laughs> well, <laughs> the when the restaurant was, was built, it was
0: awful. It, it was like it was like not. Am I yeah, being was... a karma suck. Was it kind of hideous? No, no, it was old. It was old fashioned, right? It was there was a time. I mean, I, I think about this all the time in food. Of like, there are, are you know where this where where there, there someone wrote about this uh, really well is uh, Anthony Bourdain's book uh, Kitchen Confidential. But there's been a big change in the last couple decades in food, of going from this idea of well, what is fine dining of being. Um, luxurious and an expensive place where you eat expensive ingredients Mm and things that are hard to cook right that used to be like for my parents and and i think you know i think i think maybe when you when i think like maybe 20 years ago when florida lease was was a newer restaurant that was the big idea of like luxury and fine dining and it's changed so much now and fine dining now is all about being unpretentious and oh, we'll we'll celebrate just a simple vegetable and oh, it's all right. about the integrity of the ingredient. So it's changed with the popular. I mean, I think our I think my generation's conception of fine dining is much better and I much prefer it. But of course I do because I'm part of that generation. Sure. But like I love the 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 kind of unpretentiousness of of modern fine dining. But uh, it's just a big change and I think that's why one of the reasons Florida East just looks like so out of time and place is like. Nobody goes to these fancy restaurants where there's like you know, I don't know, uh, print, unless it's ironic or 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 you know like uh, shabby chic kind
1: of decor, right. With like sh- candelabras. I mean and that that could. Plates. No, no offense, but <laughs> it could, no offense. It almost is the kind of thing they bring Gordon Ramsay to in to help with. When was the last time <laughs> this was remodeled? Right. <laughs> the. Um, you're a know, frozen Provençal. Oh, that's not a thing. Right. but but the uh, but no. But I mean, I, I don't know that much about the guy. But like, I've always really liked him on Top Chef Masters. I like when I like when he visits. And I don't know. As much as they drove this into the ground, I really do believe that it's a pretty big deal to to walk away from something like that. And and it is. I mean, it was a really. It's. I think it's one of the what three, four star restaurants in our local dog trainer. But it's a it's a very well well considered restaurant, and it's it's. I thought this part of it was actually quite good. I, I, I liked the elimination challenge.
0: Yeah, I was... The only thing that, that I was upset about is they were explaining this elimination challenge of the, the chefs are going to sort of take over Florida Lease and serve a tribute meal as like the la, to, to the, the history of the restaurant as the last meal there. I was just in the back of my head thinking, why why the fuck did they send Amar home? Like, they need Amar. Like, he's the guy who knows how to do this because he worked in... I mean, he pulled off... He already kind of did this kind of a meal during the season where he pulled off that amazing classical french meal
1: well carl's got that background also. no no uh, jeremy jeremy right? jeremy too but carl's carl's isn't carl a fancy french guy too no what is carl's i think he's a fancy french guy hmm. yeah but so what the challenge was uh let's see uh, uh hubert keller is going to uh, make you this uh, lovely stew dish which i'm sure was fantastic and you get to eat in the restaurant and I, did you fi- mm-hmm. i find it kind of charming that he made this sort of Really well executed, like peasant pheasant dish. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. And it's funny because we actually had stew for dinner that night. I was uh don't know why I told you that, but we did. It was good. my wife made us stew <laughs> in tribute to fleur Wow, we choose all of our we choose all of our food based on TV. Uh, that's a
0: big uh, that's a big honor, Merlin. <laughs> well, it's a very brave honor. <laughs> it's a brave. Brave, a big brave honor. <laughs> but
1: you know, interesting challenge, but you know, I I think again part of the narrative, you know, driving this one is that in order to get to where they could accuse people of overthinking it or being too ambitious, I guess they had to bring in all of this, you know, agita that everybody had.
0: Yeah, right. And to it it was in line with the gravity of the restaurant. Um one so one interesting thing that I thought was they went uh so they looked at the old menus of Fleur de Lis, planned their meal and went grocery shopping. And then they had dinner with Hubert Keller and got to ask him questions. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Someone asked him, uh, which we'll get into this in a minute, how do you conceive of a new dish? And I was like, boy, it's a sure shame that they didn't get to talk to the guy and have dinner with him and eat his food before they got to plan their meal. No kidding. Because I think some of them were sort of locked in of like an example of like I wrote down like Carl has fully gone insane where he looks
1: at doing a, a foie gras torchon and he goes. Is that the second time he's done that? Who, who was the last time when somebody made the, not the, uh, what's it called, a terrarium? What's the thing with the layers? What's that called? Uh, a Terrine. Yeah. Didn't, didn't, was it him or somebody It was restaurant
0: wars. Someone did, who the hell? I think Wait, it was, I, I can scroll I through feel my like very, it was very confusing Carl. notes. Hurry, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. quick fire. Uh, I'm going through my, I, wow, this is really a uh, a trip through memory lane here. I'm um, going through all my notes of the whole mm-hmm. season. Tereen. Oh, here we go. Tom ate the tureen, made notes about it. Who the hell made this tureen?
1: I'm sorry, I derailed. Palette. You. It was palette. Now, who is that? Chef Carl. Boy, I'm really missing back <clears throat> on Alex's Great team debating the difference between fine dining and refined dining. Says Carl, fantasizing about all the tureens he's made. I use the technique. But you know, just another one of these. So like, it was
0: because we think it was Carl. But like, or you, at least you, at least anyone could have learned the lesson from that.
1: Yeah, you're not going to want to take On a restaurant wars. Right, you don't want a dish that should take three days to be something in three hours.
0: Yeah. So and and what Carl said, where I just felt like he had sort of was losing his mind, was Marjorie says um, to him, "You're sure you want to do this? It's a three day process." She specifically said that. Right. And Carl said, "No, no, it's super technical. I should do it." And I was like, "What the? What are you talking about? Like." that's not what i don't i mean a horrible logi- idea for logistical purposes, but b it just doesn 't seem like that's really what hubert keller 's food is about like it may or may not be some dishes may or may not be technical, but I think his food to me it's like food with a lot of heart in it
1: mm-hmm.
0: right it's like the it's like these flavor forward and these 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 soulful f- French foods.
1: Yeah, but you it's know, not we're, about. We're it's to,
0: not just about being fancy with a technique, right?
1: And we're getting, but we're getting back to the classic, you know, mixed message thing. Where like it seems like what you would want to do here is focus ve- very heavily on something that you could make flawless and beautiful, that you could plate well, you know. Um, but then again, I mean, all the pressure is on to be like, hey, do you want your do you want your you know last meeting last uh, meal from Lis to be PB and J, you know?
0: Yeah, and and that's where I think maybe—I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it because it's like it's all you get is what they show in the show. But, like, I was thinking of the meal that Hubert Keller made for them of that stew, and I was like, I wonder if this is a little signal of, Mm, like, like, this is the least fussy, least pretentious, least technique-forward food, but it's to him that's the one dish he's going to put on the table that's like, this is what I'm serving to you to, to tell you what I'm about.
1: Right, right, right.
0: And it was just really good, right? Everyone ate it and was like, holy shit, this is a good stew. Um, so I thought also really interesting, uh, someone asked uh, Hubert Keller, what's your technique for inventing a new dish? Um, so he said, uh, I, I, I wrote the notes down from the, the closed caption." He says, uh, it's usually after midnight when everyone's gone. And, oh, you know, right, right, right. I have a glass of wine and I'm thinking about which dish I want to change on the menu. Let's say it's a lamb. So lamb comes in and I think, okay. I need a spice, I need an excitement, I need a texture. What makes the dish like a hook when it comes in front of the customer? Then I take a piece of paper and I start drawing. How am I going to place it? Where's the bone going to be and the sauce? And the next day, I try it out on the line. And I thought,
1: man, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Oh, there was. it was so interesting. And like seeing the actual drawings is like, I would never guess that that's the way he thinks about that. But
0: I, I just like the... There was something really interesting that I I liked about his process of pretty quickly going from a mode of dreaming of, right, you're alone in the restaurant, you're having a glass of wine, and you're sort of following your heart and what food is calling out to you. And then you immediately go into a step that's like very pragmatic. How am I going to put it on the plate? Where's the bone going to face? And then you're back to thinking about the – you're – heads in the clouds and you're like what's hook? Right. what's going to be exciting i think that's really interesting it's a way
1: to put all of that stuff in a balance maybe of yeah like- and it goes it goes straight to what nick was talking about when he was visiting here about you know i you know obviously he's not a, like a super fan of the show he just doesn't know like the little tricks and stuff but he was like you know hey if, if i was going to go do restaurant wars first thing i'd do is just plan 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 like spend huge amounts of time on that planning part and that's kind of what you're talking about here is like let's think through this
0: Yeah, and I bet a lot of the time when you take the moment to draw how the food is going to go on the plate, you start to realize things that you didn't think about, like time constraints that you didn't think of, ingredients that you don't have, you know, techniques that are going to be tough, whatever, all these little considerations that sometimes sneak up on you when you're cooking of like, ah, shit, I really needed baking soda and we don't have any. Once you're thinking about it on that very practical level of drawing a picture of it, it's hard to forget.
1: You know, somebody... On a recent episode of Back to Work, somebody had asked us to talk about whether, you know, we still use getting things done, and especially in my case. Dan's not a getting things done guy. But was asking me, like, you know, do I still do getting things done? Am I still, like, you know, uh, really s- j- the ardent fan-, fan of that? And I'm still a hugely ardent fan of GTD, and I still highly recommend it to people. But I'm not really doing GTD, you know, uh, the according to Hoyle version. But one thing GTD taught me, this alongside a little bit of project management, is what I, I can only think of as walking through the project. And so, like, to me, when I'm thinking about anything, and this this goes even or especially for yesterday, my daughter and I are going to go downtown. We're going to have lunch. I, I sent you a photo outside my China. We, um, <laughs> we're we going to go downstairs. We're going to have lunch, and we're going go to go see Zootopia, and then we'll probably, you know, pick up uh, some stationery at the Japanese stationery store and come home, right? So, like, that's the easiest thing in the world. You just You just go downtown, right? Uh, forgive me, because this, this is like, I think people need to hear this. But I think you have to walk through your project. And to me, walking through the project is wherever you start, <clears throat> you just keep asking yourself this question. Okay, and then what happens? And then mm. what happens? Right. So I say, okay, we're going downtown. Okay. All right. How are you getting there? Oh, we're going to take Muni. Okay. Uh, do you have either change from Muni or do you have the cards? Oh, I got the cards. Are both cards charged up? Oh, I'm pretty sure. But I better bring bring along some money just in case. you gonna want to read a book while you're on uni. Nope, don't worry about that. Anyway, I won't take you through the entire process. Uh, Yesterday it rained a lot. She didn't want to wear a jacket, but I got to put a jacket in the bag. To me, like that's what you when once you start a big step in expertise is going from just imagining how things will go to even if you've never had the experience of doing this thing a thousand times get in the habit of asking yourself and then what happens and start walking through it not to be a karma suck not to do pushback but like to me a huge part of getting better at anything is imagining it's almost like visualization imagine yourself doing it imagine the situations you run into and kind of see yourself doing that thing i don't know if this is exactly on point but i think that's kind of what he's doing well and then what happens i had a big idea so what do i do i go straight to whole foods well no let me think about this a little more I think that is i think that is this is blowing
0: my i'm sorry I'm like being quiet. this is just like this is blowing my mind. I think this is exactly the point, and I think this is you know I think what you're describing is it's a it's an aspect of of expertise of when you don't really know anything. It's easy to just be like, well, I'll figure it out. How hard could it be? I'll figure it out later. And the more you know, the more you're thinking, and then what? And then what? And then what? And you know all those things to ask. And that's like – I'm trying to think of of, of an example that, that blows my mind about this. Like one of them is when we were building our office – and I was working with the architects, like, I don't know, I mean, I really could not know less about interior design or architecture, any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have opinions of how I think the building should be built, and I'm like, well, let's just do this, right? Like, I don't know anything about it. Let's just, let's, let's just do this. And the architects are like, let's put this kind of wall up right here, or, you know, put this material up or whatever. And the architects are like, well, how is that going to meet up with the other thing, right? They know all those, qu- those and then what questions to ask that get you to where you need to be where it's like, well, if you, if you have no expertise and you don't know what you're talking about, it's easy to skim over that stuff. But that's the difference between it it working or not, let alone it being excellent or not.
1: Or also, yeah, the, the excellent part is, is a good is a good point because you can probably survive most projects. There's going to be some kludges along the way with anything that you do and you can be prepared for that. But like, you know, sort of to your point here of like when you think about what you're going to need at the grocery store, uh, you know, and I, I I always feel like I have to say, there's a lot I don't know about, about how this show works. But like I would always be thinking about stuff like, you know, is there maybe a less expensive protein that I could start marinating, like while I'm working on my main thing? Because what if that thing goes tits up? Is there anything that I could do instead of that? I don't know. You don't want to derail yourself. And again, we like that idea of getting in a lane and running really hard. But to me, the uh, and then what happens part means you can not only avoid a lot of avoidable errors in your work, but you can also find surprising opportunities and synergies. Like if you're doing something with getting into an office – well, wait a minute. Let's stop for a minute. Are we really just moving into an office? Are we growing? Do we are we going to need to grow more in the, more in the future? Like all these dumb questions that makes people roll their eyes are a great way of discovering uh, hot disputes you didn't realize there were in the office. Like, why are we doing this? How is this going to change like our, our commute? Like all these different kinds of things. When you start making it okay to talk about the and then what happens questions, you will and you're honest about it. You will learn so much about assumptions you will learn about opportunities like oh maybe this is also a good point to uh bring in that new desk this new furniture in this area like do we want to do that after we've painted the walls you know what i mean like there's all these things where like if you do that in the right order like it makes you a slightly more careful thinker and it presents you with more opportunities about what you never would have realized
0: i did um a couple years ago i did the the tufty class you know about that yeah yeah. my wife did that yeah um i i i i mean i think People could, I don't know. I I got some things out of it. A lot of it was like I I could have just. I mean, I I had read his books, so it was a lot of it was like just a dumbed down version of reading his books. Uh, Edward Tufte, for for people who know, is a very well known sort of designer and information designer, and he's been doing these sort of public lectures and classes. Or not public. They're actually extremely private, and that you need to pay a lot to go to them. He <laughs> won't t- even tell I, you where they are. Yeah. Right. Um, but, uh, so I did that. And one of the things that I, that was just, I just, it was a little throwaway comment that he made, but it was like, I just absolutely loved it. He was like, he's like a question you can ask in almost every situation to bring clarity to what you're doing is to ask someone and to ask yourself, how do you know that?
1: Almost any piece
0: of information that you're relying on, just stop for one second and go, how do you know that? And I do find myself saying that. To people, literally, that question: How do you know that sounds so confrontational? Uh it can. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I
1: hope the only I time, know, the only time most people, yeah. including me, I have to say, no, no, I'm, I'm on your side here. The yeah. truth is, and if you're like sensitive as I am and worried about criticism and making everybody love you, the only time most people ask a question like that is when they already disagree and they want to find a reason to disagree with you definitively. Right. Right? That's why it's always funny when, when you see little uh, shots of uh, Padma talking to the chefs and she asks a question, like, did you mean to have the citrus and the salt? <laughs> and, the, and you're like, because <gasps> it might be, it could be a trick question. Yeah, it another could, crudo, huh? It could be that's her favorite part. Or it could be that's, you know, fodder for when you get thrown off. But normally people are only asking for that information, I think, when they want to try and disagree more about something. But it, right. in the right environment, is it, is, let me ask you this. In your culture, your team culture, is that kind of question okay to ask by people other than you?
0: Uh, this is one of those things of, like, culture is defined by what you do versus what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I go around asking people, how do you know that? Multiple times a day, so I guess it is the kind of culture where that's okay. Do they ask you? And that? I don't. Yeah, people ask me. Well, at least, at least I think people do. I mean, I ask myself that a lot. But anyway, the only reason I brought that up is um, I just, I, I just like the idea of. Can I just say this what? is a very
1: brave episode? You and I have both shared some thought technologies that are very, very brave. <laughs> I think there's been a lot of thought leadership. We're we're doing uh, a lot episode. to explain, you know, how everybody could be doing it
0: better. Um no but I just uh, I like I'm 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 just interested in the idea of and then what as being a question like um how do you know that Oh dude I, like, I could
1: not agree this is the yeah. John Syracuseization of my mindscape is like being around John and you know, I, I I'm glad to believe you heard some episodes of our show I think you could listen to that show and hear me over time evolving a little bit cuz he loves evolving and adaptation but <laughs> but <laughs> someday we'll release the episode of him and Roderick um No, he won't. But but uh, he's really gotten into my head. And even though I'm not good at it yet, I am more and more asking myself exactly that kind of question. And you know, or with John and stuff like, well, wait a minute, what's my rational basis for that? Like, where did or in your case, like where did that come from? Because you know, if you start examining where all of these things come from, you end up with just a handful of ashes. You're like, oh my god, I have this is based on nothing. This is based on a guess about something that I had in junior high, and I still cling to it like it's the fucking Magna Carta. Boy. Very brave, brave
0: episode. <laughs> uh, let's so see. he draws uh, a picture. He draws a picture of his dish. He's against special districts this week, Merlin.
1: Oh my goodness,
0: that was a good one. I'm, I'll cop to that being a good one. Yeah, I. I that's I, that's an issue I never heard about before.
1: Yeah, I f- flipped over and watched a, watched a sports show. I got a minute into that and I was bored. <laughs> I watched a sports show about the Chicago Bears and it was very good, and it made me sad. Have you? Seen, do, there's something called thirty four thirty. Which is an ESPN series of things about sports, and I watched an hour and a half movie about the '85 uh, Bears. Um, is this the one? On is this the documentary series on Netflix? Yeah, it's all over the place on Netflix, but they're actually yeah, really good. Yeah, you know
0: good. what? I found surprising. I, I I really struggle to care at all about they're sports. They're very well made, though. It drives
1: me crazy. They're very well made. It's it's. I would
0: say it's kind of uh, like a This American Life. Um, story of sports, of like, there's something there for you even if you don't care about Act the one.
1: sports. today, going to find out who gets more points on the board. Act two, Starly Cun. <laughs> <Kine. laughs>
0: That's a really good
1: impression. <laughs> Want to hear my vocal fry? I, yeah. I no, uh, but it was great because it was about... So I, It was great because I went in going like, okay, what the fuck, I, I got nothing else to do, I'll watch this. And it was really good, and they talked to a lot of the players, and it goes on and on, and they get into this part about like how... Their defense was like, this 46 defense they ran was just so brutal, and they just totally terrified and intimidated, and they just showed all these super slow motion shots of just jamming these guys into the ground, and the whole time I'm going like, hmm, I'm guessing this got made a couple years ago, (laughs) but then it gets to the end, and it just makes your heart breaks. Because, you know, fucking Jim McMahon, you know, super annoying Jim McMahon, he's all screwed up. And they're showing him, like, getting tests and MRIs. And they have to, like, adjust the bones in his spinal column to let more fluid get to his brain. And his memory comes back for a little while. And it was so good and so painful. And they really – they killed it because they they did the whole story. And we all remember, you know, the 85, 86 bears. We all remember that, obviously. (laughs) The fridge, man. Super Bowl shuffle. And then you get, but then you get to the end and it's like, then they go through all the CTE stuff and then they get go through the death of like Walter Payton. And it was really, it was good. It was touching and it was well done.
0: Uh, well, let's put that, uh, let's stick that in the show notes. What's that one called?
1: Uh, it's called 30 for 30. The I think it's called the 85 Chicago Bears. All right. Um, so he, he right, draws his
0: food. Let's see, we're we're so close here. Uh, almost, oh, here's leave. the note I made. Here's the note I made just to close out that part. Why doesn't every episode of Top Chef have a segment where the chefs have dinner with whoever's, like, guest judging the episode? Or even if it's just Tom, and they just get to get advice from I them. I would love
1: it, that. Like, a little bit more Anthony Bourdain. Like, like I would was, love just a little bit more of, like, let's talk about, you know, about how we do this in a practical and philosophical way that's not bullshit.
0: It, it took—it was 45 seconds of the episode was, for Hubert Keller— to talk about his process for coming up with a dish, and it's by far, by far, my favorite moment of the season.
1: Yeah, it was really nice, and it felt genuinely warm
0: and, yep. and useful. I saw. Uh, speaking of uh, that, oh god, this is going to be a long one. Yeah. I saw uh, Emerald Lagasse and
1: uh, 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 oh, you Richard saw Blaze. You saw Blaze. I, I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, he was there representing a brand. Uh, we went Let me to. Get this. He um, was uh, there's really useful box. Who's there for Spectrum Brands? Spectrum Brands. Uh, we went to the. What a horrible name! Are you on the Spectrum Brands? <laughs> I don't understand the question. It's, a, ver- we it's know. a very special.
0: It's a very special family of brands. It's a very very
1: brave spectrum of brands.
0: Uh, we went to a bunch of designers from the office. Went to the like sh- uh, the uh, I think it's called like the Homewares Show or something, and it's at McCormick Place. That the you said it was the all international Convention home
1: Center. and housewares show.
0: That's the one, and uh, it was mostly radi- Like anytime you get to be an inch away from like all the the internal bullshit inside of an industry it's really funny if you're not part of it so it was really funny seeing all the marketing pitches to everyone but it's like essentially a retail show where every if you can think of a kitchen brand they're there with like a a booth and a display and showing all their spatulas wow, or, their knives or wow. whatever the hell they do so we saw um i saw emerald uh i think at whatever company makes emeralds like pans and i I thought about going to take a picture of him for the podcast or, or asking him, you know, trying to record a minute of conversation with him. And it just, I don't know.
1: I, yeah.
0: too, I couldn't really bring myself to do it. He was talking to a bunch of business people about his uh, his pans. He's a bit of a pan man. Um, but uh, uh, so I saw Emerald and uh, kind of chickened out about talking to him. Um, spent a lot of time at the Zojirushi booth, which is my favorite brand of uh, home goods. They make the, uh, the really good thermoses uh, um, that I'm obsessed with. And then uh, we were walking through, like, the appliances, and I wanted to check out SodaStream, uh, where I got a little uh, contact for you and Dan Benjamin, so you could finally land that uh, SodaStream uh, sponsorship. Jackals. Um And uh, let's see. And then, uh, yeah, on the way out—oh, by the way, great news about SodaStream sponsoring Back to Work. They're, uh, they've uh, pulled out of the West Bank, apparently. Okay, was I news. wasn't going to
1: say anything.
0: Yeah. That was so a now problem. You can, uh, now you can carbonate and not uh, feel bad.
1: Problematic. <laughs> The occupation was problematic,
0: uh. But uh, yeah, they're, uh, it's uh, uh. You don't have to feel bad anymore. Mazel tov. yeah, they did it. Um, it's a it's a it's a two state solution. I asked them about <laughs> it's a new uh, kind of hybrid solution. Yeah, uh, I asked them about. So they were making. They had a, actually. So I'll be honest. They had an incredible booth. They had probably one of the coolest booths there. And what they were doing is they had all the soda streams out and they had a bar with like 30 attendants <laughs> on it and they were carbonating water their to bi- order their with business their business model flavors. is
1: mind-boggling. Their business model, like it's, it's just incredible to think about that basically they sell plastic and air. I know. It's mostly, mostly they sell air. It's yeah. really, really amazing when you think, they sell carbon dioxide. Well, think of the people who do that of uh, canned water, right? It's like it's no,
0: oh, believe it's me, arguably I know. less, crazy than the people who sell the canned water but anyhow i asked them so i got a a demo and they were giving away speaking of wastefulness they were giving away just big hard plastic like i don't know what you call it the growlers or whatever Mm -hmm. full of fizzy water oh nice for free just filling it up with fizzy water and then here take this oh wow crazy yeah it was crazy and we all immediately, you know, we drank them and immediately threw them in their cycling because we want to carry it around. But it was like, uh, um, I mean, like mini growlers, kind of. America. <laughs>
1: it was a crazy,
0: it was a crazy booth. And as they were doing it, I asked the the woman who was making my water. I was like, "Could you burp it again?" And she was like, "Yes." And she burped it twice. And then I asked her, "What's the official company stance? Do you call it burping?" And she was like, "Well, um, we like to call it whistling. You let it whistle." Oh, whistling so that, is what happens before it burps. Whistling for saying, amateurs. The, I'm saying the canonical. Uh, I didn't get into the whole, you know, back to work uh, uh, technique. The uh, the Soda Stream method that uh, that you guys have advocated. You know, you know, how you can tell
1: when you're done. You hear this. Burp, burp, burp. That's no, that's it's, that's a whistling Merlin. Oh, I thought you were talking about the the kind of like the. Uh, I think they just wanted to make a kind of like an actress farting, like just a very <laughs> dainty little.
0: <laughs> they they don't prefer if you can believe this. The canonical corporate term is not
1: burping. Hmm. <laughs> how interesting. Yeah! Wow! Sorry, what right. a day! And you got Smeg. You went, to, you went to see Smeg? We saw a brand called Smeg, Smeg. and then
0: uh, I saw and then I saw my favorite Top Chef contestant of all time, my favorite personality on Top Chef, Richard Blaze, uh, wearing a little like the Britney Spears headset with a mm-hmm. little microphone uh, dingus on the end of it, at uh, the family of brands, the parent company of Black and Decker, Spectrum Brands, Spectrum Brands, and he was demoing a sort of. Three-stack-high countertop Black & Decker toaster oven. Oh, it looks like a Breville, but I guess that must be a Black & Decker. It's a Black & Decker toaster oven that was like three—it was like a five-decker, right? Like, you could put a, a ton of stuff in there. And he was making muffins in a Ooh. Black & Decker toaster oven, and he was selling the bejesus out of it. His hair was all cool and spiked he up. He looks pretty cooked like,
1: up in this picture, I got to say.
0: Uh, He's very he was, animated. He was
1: full of energy.
0: Big, kind of a big crowd for that trade show had gathered around, and he was selling the shit out of it. He was like, "I make these muffins every day at my house. I love these muffins." And I was thinking, "Really? You come home and you make mm. m- a, muffins a tray in your toaster oven?" I, I don't know. Mm. So I didn't have the heart to go up to him. Um, I felt like it was to me. I, I felt like when you, it's like running into an old. It's like seeing an old college friend who you haven't seen in a long time. Like it was this like recognition of someone, but also he was like eating out of the dumpster. So I was like, the, <laughs> I, I was like the kind. <laughs> thing here would be would be to pretend for both of us (laughs) yeah right it's like it's kind of a kindness to just pretend that i don't know him somehow
1: Uh, i think Uh, he probably
0: does pretty well uh, listen uh, listen being i i don't mean i don't mean any of this to be mean to 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 him or emerald not that i feel like i mean this has got to be free money for him and be wounded no, and listen, like, being a chef and running restaurants is fucking brutal business. It's so hard. You have no time and you don't make but a lot of money. But he probably got
1: 50000 bucks for this.
0: Oh, no doubt. I mean, good for him for this was easy, great, high-paying work. I hope he negotiated a great deal. I hope he got paid and took care of his family. But it was not – it was just a thoroughly bizarre thing just seeing this guy who I really look up to making uh, muffins in a toaster oven and just extolling the virtues
1: of uh, toaster oven muffins. Mm.
0: Anyhow, uh, let's see. So, Flavor bullets.
1: Pew pew pew. Oh, you got uh, so Carl's gonna. He's, he's doing. He's rolling his own. Um,
0: let's see. He here. rolls up his
1: own. Uh... That's right. Carl makes the foie gras torch
0: on, which again, it's like just like in the toast one. It's like so clearly telegraphed. Like, don't do this. Uh, Isaac hmm. made a duck valentine. That was um, that was ambitious. Uh, felt bad. I felt bad for him. I felt like he was really stretching himself to show. The refinement that, that he's been criticized for not having. Yeah. And ultimately, sort of just underscored that that is not, he's not good at that and that's not his style of cooking. And I wish for Isaac's sake, I mean, he was safe. He's going to the finals, so I don't feel that bad. But I do wish for his sake he had had the. Mm, I wish he was brave enough to make a peasant food, to well, make the kind of food that is his thing instead of making a cherry exactly Exactly. Something, and foie something
1: like a hearty, rustic dish. That you could serve in a place like that, 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 you know, make it, make it beautiful, have it, have these great flavors. He obviously enjoys that kind of food. It isn't just about whacking meat with a machete. Yeah, I'm with you on that. But, you know, so he had to skin six or seven ducks to do that? In one piece. Oh my God, that's amazing. I mean,
0: Truly incredible that he got it done, and uh, ultimately, I think it was just sort of a time management issue of like didn't have time to cook it. The, the he had to he had to cook it a little too hot, and there were right. some technical errors. That's a
1: shame. And then Marjorie had her lamb lamb saddles, lamb saddles. Lamb and saddles. She
0: was she was she was playing. Marjorie was uh, playing it safe a little bit, and uh, Jeremy, I will say, Jeremy had a. Great-looking dish. He Mm -hmm. did um, this potato uh, uh, – well, he did a a palm souffle, which is a really cool technique that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. You sort of puff up this thin, perfect chip of potato and make like a little crisp potato chip. And then it's perfectly cut to be the size of your fish. And he put this really delicate piece of bronzino on top of the palm souffle. And I imagine that gives it like a crispy skin almost. Um, I I could see that just being an amazing dish. And then I thought a really funny turn of events was he wound up doing this potato puree, which was that stupid dish that Philip tried to do that wound up being the gummy right, potato right, right. sauce. And he met, By the lo- way, he meant
1: it to be that way.
0: That's right. Jeremy. Yeah, that, well, it, Jeremy's execution, at least, it just looked so good. It looked awesome. That yeah. dish looked beautiful. I think everyone had a good experience eating it. Like, there were no obvious errors. And just totally the right kind of food. Like, a little bit clever, really flavorful, good presentation. Totally the right kind of food for the setting. Um, So, of course, Jeremy was on the top for that. He's on his sort of uh, unstoppable Donald Trump rampage. Yep. Um, Carl, uh, uh, they had a tough time, I think, deciding between whether to send Isaac or Carl home. It seemed like a pretty
1: split decision, like a legitimately split decision.
0: Yeah. And uh, ultimately, I think they felt like—I think I would have, just as a viewer— obviously, you don't get to taste the food, but from what I saw, I I agree with the decision, I think— That conceptually, Carl trying to do that torchon, which was just not an appropriate food to make in that time, was better than Isaac's. At least Isaac's was more plausible that he could have gotten it done. Yeah. And then Carl, uh, on his way out, he said, it was a stupid dish to do, but I really wanted to do it. And uh, at least he—you know, I think that's—at least it's nice that he sort of owned up to it. Yeah. There wasn't—he didn't go home This has been a uh, good
1: season uh, for—well, with the exception of, I guess, Grayson. Like, you know, you think about the way that Karen, Kwame— Carl, all of them when they've gone off have been really classy.
0: Absolutely, very few post getting cut meltdowns, and people seem to be on the same pages of like, I know, I understand the mistake I made. Right. So they do. So Last Chance Kitchen. Um, this is where. Um, so I did notice a couple of things. So this was yeah. clearly filmed in sequence with the rest of Last Chance Kitchen, and uh, it was not. There was no cut to Vegas here, right? Um, the really I can tell is that Carl had
1: shorter hair in uh, Last Chance.
0: Well, well, we'll get to that. All I'm saying is, all the Last Chance Kitchen so far has been filmed in one sitting, right. one session, because yeah, you can sure. see Jason's finger is still injured from when he cooked against Philip and cut himself. So there was, you know, he was still wearing a little finger condom. But you're right, Carl's hair was different. Um, a lot of the chefs have sort of, you know, lost or gained some weight. Like every, people's hair is different lengths. So my guess is what happened is. All the Last Chance Kitchen is filmed in Vegas all back to back to back and the and it's filmed concurrent with the end of Top Chef and the winner is going to walk out
1: there. Oh, so now we're caught up essentially.
0: Now we're now basically when Top Chef comes back and it's and you see the contestants getting off the plane and going to Vegas th- this is around the time that they're shooting Last Chance Kitchen.
1: So, help me understand how they're working in another Last Chance Kitchen.
0: So I think what's going to happen is, as either a web exclusive or the opening of next week's episode, we're going to see a last chance kitchen battle between uh, Amar and Carl, where you know Jason Jason was uh, knocked out, and Amar and Carl are the last two, and one of them is going to rejoin the competition, and we'll see some sort of probably I'm guessing woven into the regular show some sort of battle between them to see who gets back in.
1: That actually makes total sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think they've done this before where, where you got to see who, you know, they they basically, like, compete to see who walks out on the This is the set. first
1: season I've really watched it, and I'm really glad I have.
0: It's good, right? It's a little less gamey and fussy than than Top Chef. Uh, so let's see. Amar made a beef wellington, which, you know, like Tom said, uh, not the best he's had but also not the worst he's had, which is pretty impressive given the, the constraints of doing it in Last Chance Kitchen. Jason made a fancy toast with some egg and stuff on it, and Carl made a gazpacho. Uh, Jason sort of missed the mark as compared to Amar and Carl, which is like, frankly, this is exactly what we predicted would happen at this point in the season. Of like, is Jason really going to be able to?
1: Yeah, but hold it his
0: sucks. Own. We were pulling for the guy. I I'll say I would have much rather seen Jason and Amar go to the final, you know, the final episode than than Carl. I'm I'm ready to be done with Carl after the mistakes he made this week.
1: Mm. You wash your hands of him.
0: I also feel like you know if you're just going to send Amar, the last people eliminated both of them. Right, two people eliminated in this episode. They're both coming back the next episode. Why even do the last chance kitchen?
1: Hmm.
0: Why do we even watch all that?
1: I don't know. Mm. What's it all for? Yeah, I mean, why, why why do we bother with anything really, Max? I don't know. Maybe I should get that law degree. Maybe that would be something. Did you get an MSL? Did, did you see the teaser for next week? Um. I'm trying oh to think brother! Oh boy, I did. Oh, I did, brother. and I saw
0: Mar- Marjorie burns her tongue on it the liquid nitrogen. On
1: nitrogen, and it's there's magic. That's going to upset me. I'm already upset about next week's episode. Oh, well, David Copperfield is a huge deal. He's a legend. Oh, he... (laughs) (laughs) This is Top Chef. He's not Top Scallops.